to hear my disclosures. So BCL2 is a family of proteins that we've heard a lot about, but I think, you know, there's a lot of uh, misconception about what goes on, and I think there's a lot that we can gain by further understanding what really is occurring. And what we're going to hear a lot about, and a lot of this is work being done by Matt Davids, is looking at what's called the apoptotic threshold, sort of trying to sum up all these different proteins in the cell and how active they are and how non-active they are, and the likelihood of this cell really being pushed to apoptosis. So under normal conditions, we have anti-apoptotic proteins, which are listed up here on the top, uh, basically like BCL2 and MCL1 are the most important ones, and they bind and inhibit the pro-apoptotic proteins here, mostly um, back and backs. And by inhibiting them from inducing apoptosis, the cell is able to survive. Under conditions of stress, BH3-only proteins, this group down here, which includes NOXO and BIM, sort of get upregulated. And in the process of being upregulated, they sequester BCL2 and the other anti-apoptotic proteins. And with the anti-apoptotic proteins being removed from the equation, the pro-apoptotic group, the second group here, is then able to induce apoptosis by actually perforating the mitochondrial membrane and uh, causing collapse of the uh, membrane potential. So what we see here basically is a membrane of the mitochondria with the various proteins that are in place. And what I really want to emphasize is that Venatoclax is a BH3 mimetic, so it works just like a BH3-only protein and sequesters BCL2 and prevents BCL2 from sequestering the pro-apoptotic proteins, enabling them to actually induce apoptosis. And this is a threshold that cells actually have to cross before undergoing apoptosis. And so by sequestering these proteins, the question is, is do we move the cells closer to the threshold or do we push them over our threshold? And this is going to have certain important implications when we start discussing ideas like combination therapy. So I want to talk a little bit about the first phase one study. So venatoclax was actually a little bit of a, a strange process to uh, approval where the first phase one study actually wasn't a traditional phase one study, but it was close. And initially, um, they started patients off at single doses and patients would receive a dose, and then um, basically if it was well tolerated, they would actually up, in the, up the dose in the standard three by three array. So we had patients who were getting venatoclax without a dose ramp up. Now at 200 milligrams, they started to see some clinical tumor lysis, and as a result, they changed the process and initiated a one, a one dose test dose, typically 50 milligrams, followed a week later by 50 milligrams daily. Now, in this initial, with this second strategy, we actually saw tumor lysis in 18% of patients, so 10 out of 56 patients. And this resulted in three patients having clinical tumor lysis, including one death. Seven patients had laboratory-only tumor lysis, so this was still a significant problem. And what's important to keep in mind is that this occurred after the first dose, so it really is something that happens very abruptly. 
And all of this sort of leads to our current tumor lysis mitigation strategy, which I'll explain in a moment. What I really want to also point out, though, is so we don't have a true phase one dose escalation, but we do know that the exposure is proportional to the dose. And so while in CLL the approved dose is 400 milligrams, or the approved target dose is 400 milligrams daily, we are testing in Waldenstrom's and AML 800 milligrams. And you can see the 800 milligrams definitely gives you higher exposures, and it certainly may improve efficacy, we don't know. I'd also like to point out that whenever you are doing a dose escalation and you have a patient who's on a medication that might interfere with the metabolism of venetoclax, the issue really is, is that you sort of bump up their level and in essence forego the um, tumor lysis mitigation strategy of a dose ramp up. So that's always very important to keep in mind. So the current way that venetoclax is approved and the current way that um, it's been used safely, and I really have to emphasize safely, is basically with a dose ramp up. So we start at 20 milligrams a day weekly, daily for one week, and if a patient has no evidence of tumor lysis, we actually will then go up to 50 milligrams daily for a week, and then 100, then 200, then 400. And once at 400, they'll continue the 400 uh, indefinitely until disease progression or unacceptable toxicity. So the other key component of this tumor lysis mitigation strategy is really sort of characterizing the patients in risk, stratify, risk stratifying the patients in the low, medium, or high risk based upon a lymph node size less than 5, 5 to 10, greater than 10, or the lymphocyte count greater than 25 or less than 25,000. And as you can see, based upon their actual risk profiles, so low, intermediate, and high, and based upon um, also their GFR, whereas if their GFR is less than 80, they should really be automatically escalated to the high-risk category. But based upon these characteristics, we actually have a very nice prescriptive means for preventing tumor lysis in these patients, which is very successful. And since the advent of this, there actually hasn't been any evidence of clinical tumor lysis in a patient. So I want to talk now about the pivotal study that led to accelerated approval for venetoclax. This was the M13982 study, which looked at venetoclax and 17P-deleted CLL. The key inclusion criteria really was just being 17P-deleted and relapse and refractory. Um, and patients could not have had a prior allogeneic transplant or any uncontrolled autoimmune cytopenias. And the primary response rate, because this was accelerated approval, I'm sorry, the primary endpoint, keeping in mind that this was an accelerated approval, was only overall response rate. Here you can see the patient demographics, and what I want to highlight here is the 18%, 40%, and 42% respectively for low, medium, and high tumor lysis risk category. So even in relapsed disease, and a lot of these patients were very refractory, and so of course their disease bulk continued to progress before they got onto this study, really were very high risk. And one option for treating patients in diminishing the risk of tumor lysis would be to treat them slightly earlier than we might otherwise. Um, so the median time on study by the time this data was published was 12.1 months. We have 65% of the patients still actively receiving venetoclax. We've had 22 patients develop disease progression, 
and 11 of them were due to Richter's transformation, and 11 were due to CLL progression. And I think the Richter's transformation is very important here because this is certainly a population that's at high risk for Richter's given the large number of prior therapies and the presence of 17P deletion. And of course, we don't have any data or any belief that the venetoclax as a single agent is effective in Richter's. So these are patients who we would expect to not do well. Um, and you can see that most of the deaths were actually due to progressive disease. So overall response rate was 79%, 8% CRs, we had 3% nodular PRs, and 69% PRs. Now one of the things I think that's very intriguing that's really recognized with venetoclax is this entity of MRD negative partial responders. So in a way, the lymph nodes stretch, the spleen stretches, and after you get very, very deep responses, they don't all go back down to normal. So we had a large number of partial responders who met complete response or complete response uh, in complete criteria, except for some persistent lymphadenopathy. And the median lymph node side was just 2.1 centimeters. So this is a group that, even though it's a large number of PRs, this is a very successfully treated group of patients. 25 of 48 patients had no CLL in the bone marrow, and 18 of 45 patients that were assessed were MRD negative in the peripheral blood. And here you can see the change in absolute lymph site count uh, from baseline, and what actually I think might one day be a helpful trick to look at, and of course this is not something you can do when you're using an anti-CD20 in conjunction with the venetoclax, is by looking at the absolute lymph site count at about six months, if the patient really gets down below 2,000, that really predicts for them doing well long-term. If their ALC is hanging out around three to 4,000, those are patients who tend to progress by month 12. Now, those are data not published, just observations from my experience. Um, and here, of course, you can see the change in lymph node size, and you can see a lot of patients with very significant lymphadenopathy still persistent who actually have done very nicely. Cumulative incidence of response, you can see here, um, where the responses happened fairly quickly. Um, the CRs are actually, they really started about six months and start to climb. Same thing with partial, um, sorry, same thing with MRD negativity. And you can see here that the MRD negativity really starts to increase at month six and may plateau at month 18. And these data are very important because these are going to help inform us when we start discussing ideas about discontinuation of therapy. How much venetoclax is sufficient? And at what point do we say that we're unlikely to continue getting additional, ad additional benefit from additional therapy? And the responses, of course, are very durable. Um, with the patients who achieved a, a CR, a CRI, or a nodular PR having 100% uh, PFS at 12 months, and the MRD negative patients having a 94% progression-free survival at a duration of response at uh, 12 months. So MRD negativity doesn't guarantee that we're done, um, and that's something that we'll hopefully learn a lot more about as we start investigating deeper MRD testing. The drug was actually really well tolerated with the most common AE being neutropenia, and this is neutropenia that's often well tolerated. One of the issues that I think is important to keep in mind is that we can actually dose through the neutropenia with the use of nupogen to help provide, or nulasa to provide support for the patient. Definitely some GI side effects as well, most commonly nausea, but some diarrhea as well.
And looking at what I call AEs of special interest, we see tumor lysis in five patients during the ramp up, but these were actually just laboratory evidence of tumor lysis, no clinical tumor lysis, and only two patients had dose interruptions for just one day each. And as I mentioned, the neutropenia um, was seeing grade three or four in 40% of the patients, but 22% of patients had baseline uh, neutropenia um, going on to this study. So I just want to quickly mention one additional study where we looked at venetoclax post-BCR antagonist. And so this was the M14032 study, which really looked at venetoclax in patients who were relapsed after or refractory to ibrutinib for one arm and idelisib for the other arm. And what I'd like to really show here is that we actually had a large number of patients who received ibrutinib and idelalisib. Um, so they were actually allocated to which arm based upon what their most recent treatment was. But you can see here that a lot of patients had received both. And in looking at the PFS, we see a median PFS of 24.7 months for all patients. Um, and the overall survival actually at 24 months is estimated to be 76% with the median not yet reached. And you can see progression-free survival by MRD negativity. For the MRD negative population, you can see the MRD is, the median's not been reached and we're at about 78% at about 24 months. And then this brings us to the Murano trial, which is a trial that led to full approval for venetoclax and relapsed CLL. And this was a trial looking at venetoclax plus rituximab versus bendamustine rituximab. And as you can see here, this was relapsed refractory disease. Patients could have had one to three prior lines of therapy, must have included one prior chemotherapy. And if that prior chemotherapy was bendamustine, you have had to have had a response duration to bendamustine of greater than 24 months. Patients had a five-week ramp-up, as previously described, and then got rituximab at the standard FCR-style dosing and remained on venetoclax for a period of two years. So this trial actually is the first one to really focus on or to test fixed duration of therapy. So patients got two years of venetoclax and were then done. Uh, the comparator you can see was bendamustine, which was given at 70 milligrams per meter squared, um, with rituximab as the same uh, dosing as we typically use. Um, and you can see that the primary endpoint was progression-free survival. So of course, venetoclax rituximab won, uh, with the median not reached. The median from bendamustine rituximab was 17 months. And remember, this is a group of relapsed patients, including some who had gotten prior bendamustine. So we don't expect this to be as good as the um, pivotal bendamustine data. What I really want to focus on here, and once again, this is going to be very helpful for informing us on what we should be looking to the future when we start looking at fixed duration of therapy and how much is enough, is the rate of MRD uh, negativity. And what you can see here is that we really start to see MRD negativity by month four, but it seems to plateau by month nine. And so it really gets to the idea that we you know, maybe anything beyond this isn't going to necessarily be helpful. I um, mean, that's, you know, at that point in time, we could actually st sort of identify those patients who might need something else and might need to move on. Um, I'm sorry, this is actually an incorrect slide. So what these, the Murano trial and all these other studies have informed us is sort of what I think the future is going to hold. 
And this is what's called the Captivate study, and it's a pharmacyclic-sponsored study, but it's looking at ibrutinib plus venatoclax in previously untreated CLL. And this trial actually has a couple, it has two cohorts. The first cohort is what's called the MRD-negative cohort. And the idea in this cohort is that patients are going to receive uh, three months of just ibrutinib, with the role of ibrutinib being able to debulk the patients, diminish the tumor lysis risk, and then patients are going to receive 12 months of ibrutinib plus venatoclax, with the standard five-week dose ramp-up for venatoclax. Patients are then assessed for MRD negativity in the blood and the bone marrow, and if patients are MRD negative, they're actually then randomized to either go on ibrutinib with the venatoclax discontinued or go on placebo with venatoclax and ibrutinib discontinued. All right, and this is actually a double-blinded. The patients who are MRD positive actually are then randomized to either go on ibrutinib or ibrutinib plus venatoclax, and this is not blinded. Um, after this study, after this cohort accrued, we had a second cohort that was actually enrolled, which is what we call the fixed duration cohort. And this cohort was actually looking at patients who are just going to get the three months of ibrutinib, followed by 12 months of venatoclax, and then stop. And so there was no randomization, everyone just stopped. And so here you can see the outline for these two different protocols, I'm um, sorry, the two different cohorts. And what's really, I think, important from this is this gives us an interesting opportunity to investigate what happens when we discontinue therapy. And I think that this is a question that everyone's been asking since we've identified the ability to get patients into deep MRD negativity. So a second part of this study is called the progression or reintroduction phase. And if you're in the MRD cohort and you were MRD negative, and therefore you progressed by becoming MRD positive or developed a frank IWCLL progression. If you were on placebo, you got ibrutinib, and if you were on ibrutinib, you were given venatoclax in addition to the ibrutinib. So once again, testing whether or not if we stop venatoclax and a patient progresses, are we able to put them back on venatoclax and rescue them? And this, of course, is very important because the one thing we don't want to do is to deny our, our patients what is effective therapy. Now, in the MRD, um, I'm sorry, if they're MRD positive in the MRD cohort and they develop IWCLL progression, because remember, they're already MRD positive, if they're on ibrutinib, they get ibrutinib plus venatoclax, and if they're on ibrutinib plus venatoclax, then they're just off trial. In the fixed duration cohort, patients are going to be able to, when they develop progression, go on either ibrutinib or ibrutinib plus venatoclax, uh, with, uh, based upon physician preference. So what I want to show are some data from, uh, this is ASCO. We're going to have, certainly have a great deal of updated data at ASH this coming December. Um, but the ibrutinib lead-in, so the three months of single-agent ibrutinib, dramatically reduces the risk of tumor lysis. With 35 out of 40 patients who are high tumor lysis risk category shifted to medium or low risk, and there was no evidence of any clinical tumor lysis or laboratory, and laboratory tumor lysis in only two patients when we added the venatoclax to the ibrutinib at the beginning of cycle four. Adverse events, it's really interesting. It was really well tolerated. The most common is actually going to be diarrhea. What I do want to really emphasize is we did see a very significant increase in neutropenia. So the ibrutinib venatoclax combination does seem to have a significant impact on that. 
Um, in some of the other studies, I do know like in the Waldenstrom study, looking at 800 milligrams of venetoclax, neutropenia is something that we frequently see as well. And you can see here the MRD responses over time. You can see in, after six cycles of ibrutinib plus venetoclax, we see 77% of the patients being MRD negative in the peripheral blood. And MRD negativity after 12 cycles in the peripheral blood, 93% and 86% in the bone marrow. So I just want to then finish up with some other studies. Of course, you know, venetoclax has a great deal of ability to be combined with other agents. And it's certainly, I think, important to be careful when we do these combinations because we want to make sure that our combinations are going to be safe and also take advantage of what they have to offer. But um, the Murano trial I already presented, there's going to be some data emerging about a combination of abinutuzumab plus venetoclax, which was a Genentech-sponsored trial. Um, we have BR plus venetoclax, or we have um, BG plus venetoclax. We have the CLL2 by the German CLL study group, which is ibrutinib, venetoclax, and venetoclax. We have the BAG, which uses the bendamustine for debulking, and then venetoclax obinutuzumab. We have the CLL13, which is looking at venetoclax plus rituxan versus obinutuzumab plus venetoclax versus FCR slash BR. Um, we also have the CLL14, which is looking at abinutuzumab venetoclax versus abinutuzumab chlorambucil in treatment-naive patients with a SEER score over 6. And finally, the uh, PCYC1142 study, which I mentioned, which we'll be seeing much more data of um, at ASH. And with that, I'd like to thank you.